This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome back to New Books and Gender Studies. I am the co-host of the channel, Lillian Barger. Today, my conversation is with Lee Fott, an assistant professor of history at Le Moyne College. Her book, Women in the World of Frederick Douglass, published by Oxford University Press, is a topic of this show. Fott offers us a detailed and rich portrait of Frederick Douglass's private and public life and his relationship with many women in his world. From his enslaved mother, Harriet, Sophia Alt, the slave mistress that sparked his interest in reading, to his wife of 44 years, Anna Murray, daughter Rosetta, and his white second wife, Helen Pitts. These were the women who populated his private world. From each, he learned lessons about the workings of race, gender, and class in America, and prepared him to collaborate with many anti-slavery women, including Maria Weston Chapman, Amy Post, and Julia Griffiths. He saw his fight for abolition as part of women's cause that brought him into contact with Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Susan B. Anthony. Seeing himself as a women's rights man who attended the Seneca Falls Women's Rights Convention in 1848, he was perplexed by the betrayal of many women's rights advocates. Fought fills in much of what is lacking in the female empty space in the study of Douglas, allowing a fuller understanding of his life and ideas. This is an invaluable contribution to Douglas studies. Here is my conversation with Lee Fott. Now let me introduce you to the author, Lee Fott. Hello, Lee. Hello. Thank you for having me. Welcome to the show, and thank you for sharing your thoughts with our audience. Your book makes a tremendous contribution in filling much, much of what is ignored and overlooked in the study of Frederick Douglass, which I never really noticed before. It's kind of odd that I didn't notice it before. But before we get into the book, tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, and how you came to write Women in the World of Frederick Douglass. Well, let's see. Um, my background is a little eclectic, not wildly eclectic, but um, I started out actually studying colonial history and then um, moved over into the 19th century. It's kind of funny. I thought I wasn't interested in anything after 1800. And then I took a class in history after 1800, and I realized, wow, this is amazing. Um, then I moved into Southern history, I think because I was trying to understand my own family's past. My first book was about a somebody who was probably about as far away from Frederick Douglass as you could get and still be in the 19th century. I mean, a slaveholding white woman. Um, who was not 
a woman's rights woman. And um, I always joke that I was she reminded me of my grandmother <laughs> and um, a powerful woman, but not quite what you'd expect. Um, and after writing about her, I wanted to understand I, I wanted to kind of I wanted to spend time in the mind of somebody who I could admire. And I ended up working at the Frederick Douglass Papers. Um, and we were publishing the letters, the kind of the first maybe 10 years of the correspondence of Frederick Douglass. And I had to annotate, which is, you know, explain what he's talking about or who he's writing about to somebody who's just wanting to look at his letters and refer to them or research in them, but doesn't want to do all of the background research, for instance, when he says, I saw Joe and who's Joe? I would research who Joe was or Josephine. As it turned out, and those were the women, you know, when I started to see how many women he was referring to and doing all of that research and seeing you know, the women were the ones who were interesting me. And I started to notice how many of them were around him and how much work they were doing. And then I took kind of a detour on my career path, became an archivist for a little while, went to library school. But really, I found out I was a historian and I wanted to tell the stories of the documents, not organize the documents. And Douglas just would not let me go. And um, and uh, the women, I just... And so when I got back on the academic track, I was working at a community college and I didn't have to research and I didn't have to write. And this book, I just kept thinking about, I want to write about these women who are around Douglas. I want to write this book. Why not? And so I about, I guess maybe not even 10 years ago. Okay. We'll go for 10 years, 10, eight years ago. I decided Let's do it. You know, if I die and haven't done this, I'm going to regret it. And so I did. And uh, it became a thing. And so that's what brought me to it. But what it was was seeing all these women who were drawn to him and um, kind of being one of them myself and wanting to tell that story. Um, am I no, getting? You're, no, you're right. I want to go on to something else here. Uh, your book is addressing a problem in scholarship regarding Douglas. Can you talk yeah. a little bit about that problem and why that problem has existed? What is the problem that your your book is filling? When I started to look at these women, and then, of course, you go to the secondary sources to look where are these women, what have other people said. For a long time, nobody wrote about these women because you left the women out of the stories for most of the 20th century. He wrote about them. If you look in his autobiographies, he's paying tribute to them. He's paying tribute to them in a very public way because, I mean, he never, um, you know, he addressed the work that they did, that they're known for, that they wanted to be known for. But it was like the biographers kind of didn't even address that. They didn't address, they might mention his second wife because she was white, and that was a note and contrast her to the first wife who was black. But they really, they didn't mention women. It was like women weren't important in the abolitionist movement, weren't, women were in the background. Um, 
then as women's history started to become a field and people started to realize that, oh, hey, you know, women did do things in history that mattered and not just the great women who are on the stage, but women, you know, collectively were a force in history. Um, when biographers started to try to incorporate women into his life, they did it in really clumsy ways. It was like they didn't quite know how to deal with women in his life. They were, it was almost like they were caught between that public and private dichotomy, that public sphere, private sphere. Public was where the real work was done. Private was domestic. And even when, you know, uh, one of his biographers, William McFeely, tried that. There's still this flip-flop feeling to it. He's out here doing this great stuff in public, and then he goes home and he does this. And he's out here doing this among men, and then he goes home and there's his wife and his kids. And there was no connection between the two. And then even when there were women out there in that public sphere among men, women like Julia Griffiths, um, women like Maria Weston Chapman, who were part of that work, it was like, what do you do with them there? They were there. Okay, what were they doing? And the type of work they were doing, they weren't on stage necessarily giving talks. They weren't doing necessarily the same kind of work he was doing, but they were out there. I mean, when you started to look at the literature on abolitionist women, then you could see the work that they were doing. And it wasn't necessarily sexy work. It was fundraising. Um, and it was necessary. And in fact, it was, it was actually quite exciting to see how they were integrating. They were at the cutting edge of integrating their organizations racially. They raised the money and they made sure that, that these men could be on stage and women could be on stage. They made sure that the, the halls got rented, that the newspapers covered their shortfalls. They did all of this work. And um, so these biographers didn't seem to know how to integrate this. And uh, um, and that became very frustrating. So when I flipped the point of view, when I decided, OK, let's let's just look at the women and what the women are doing. And um, then you start to see where. It's not, as women's historians have been debating for the past 10, 15, 20 years, it isn't this public-private divide. The two things in our act. And even though they did live in a period of time in which there was, and we still deal with what do we want to be public and what do we want to be private, and they did live in a time that tried to divide things into what's okay to be in public and what is domestic, they manipulated that. And the two things worked together. And so they had already known before they even named it. I mean, it was the feminists in the 1970s who named it, but the personal was political. And so that's when you started to look at it from the women's point of view, then you started to see that element of his activism and the important roles they played, not just kind of the material roles, but every role they played. And what's interesting about Douglas, of course, is that we have treated him, in my circles, because I'm an intellectual historian, we treat him and his intellectual thought, so we put a lot of emphasis on what he wrote, and we tend to totally ignore uh, 
the rest of his life. And you're talking about women being, you know, the, you're talking about the private role uh, of women, how they interact with him. But he had, from your book, he had women who were intellectual partners, yep. women that he exchanged ideas with. They weren't just, uh, you know, uh, supporting him in, in very concrete ways. They also had their own ideas. And those yes. are the women that I'm very, like, interested in, in really talking about. But I, I want to get go back to uh, what the lapse is or where the holes are in this history of scholarship on Douglas. How, and you did talk about how Douglas uh, talked about these women in his work. Mm-hmm. He mentions them. He, you know, gives them their due. But mm-hmm. how much did he feed that? marginalization of the women, particularly some of his more intellectual partners. Yeah, well, a lot of that, I mean, I hate to fall into the cliche of this. It was at a time. Yeah, right. A lot of it, but but again, there is this dangerous, you know, it was the time. There was this dangerous game that a lot of them are playing in, in moving, you know, first of all, they're challenging what women should be or could be. And there is always the danger of when you step out of that, especially if you're stepping out of that, like a lot of the things he was coming up against and the women he was with, like, well, I guess the most common example is him and Julia Griffiths and how their very public role together working in the North Star office um, became fodder for a scandal. So if you, you had to be very careful that if you went too far, somebody could always come back at you and make you suddenly not respectable and discredit everything you're trying to do. Um, So, and Douglas himself, like a lot of the women he's working with, is very, very wedded to these politics of respectability, of putting up this respectable front, a respectable family, and not just the front, but also internalizing it. Because he had another another, uh, agenda Besides moving women forward or, or black men and women forward in the public realm, he also wanted to show, I think especially with the chapter that you talk about his wife, Anna Murray, how he was trying to show that black women, black families could function yeah. in you know, the traditional, what we consider now the traditional middle class way of life with a woman being yeah. at home and being domestic and doing things and supporting her husband in the public realm. So he was, he was trying to do a couple of things at the same time. Yeah. Right? So yeah. let's talk about his relationship with his wife, uh, Anna Murray, who he was married to for 44 years. Yeah. And <laughs> the interesting, uh, juxtaposition between him and her. And how their relationship worked. They had, it was like a joint project. And, yeah. and their home was the, a model. They were trying to make their home sort of a model yeah. of what African American people could achieve. Yes, yes, very right. much. Okay, so talk about her. I think she's very interesting. Oh, she is interesting. Well, the first thing that, I mean, dealing with her, this was a woman who did not want me to know her. I mean, I don't think she wanted anyone to know her. She chose who would know her. And as a historian trying to pry into her life, I just would have visions of like, I'll die and I'll go over to the other side and she'll be sitting there waiting for me and she'll slap me. I mean, she struck me as this very private person. I mean, even when you read her daughter's memoir of her to her daughter, she was a very private person. So she kept a lot to herself. So she was hard to get at. Um, But 
trying to understand where she's coming from. I had to, you know, in, in a lot of trying doing this is where were these women coming from, which I don't think any of his biographers that even the ones who try to deal with the women have sat down and said, okay, what did these women bring to this relationship and where, what is their point of view in it? And from her, I had to start with where she's coming from. What are, were her options when she was 26 years old and a single woman in Baltimore and looking forward in her life when she meets this young man who's a slave, what options does she have in her life? And what would she want in her life? And in all likelihood, she would want her own kind of independence. She wouldn't want to be a domestic in somebody else's house. And she would want to be able to have a husband and children and be mistress in her own house and raise her own children and have a certain level of financial security, even if she did have to do some work, you know, have her children have a better life. And, you know, here comes this kind of, um, I always imagine him as having a little bit of swagger, smart, ambitious young man, and he's going to offer her this future, possibly. I mean, it was a huge risk for her to take to pin her future on this young slave and run away to the north, cutting off her whole family. She was free. She was a free woman. She was free. And um, and so she took this huge risk to run away with them. And when they started off, you know, what kind of future did they see? And um, And I don't think of it as some great love story. I see it as, you know, you have these skills and I have these skills and we want these things out of life. And... Yeah, let's go for it. And um, and so they start off, you know, essentially this working class family in a black community. And um, and the game changed radically within a couple of years. And um, she had to react to that. And he became, you know, when they get to I mean, the, the thing to think about, I mean, when they got together, he didn't even know who Shakespeare was to know that this was some, you know, much less that he liked Shakespeare, much less that in 10 years he's going to be in front of huge crowds and quoting Shakespeare second only to the Bible. So how are they going to know that, you know, in 10 years that's going to happen? And she's like most of my students. Leaves, Shakespeare leaves them cold. If that's making any sense, that is, you know, here they are, they get together and then this huge change happens and he discovers something about himself that she's, you know, she's not interested in. Now, now what happens when they get married, of course, and he began, you know, he gets his freedom and there's a long process there, but he becomes, you know, a very public person. She yeah. remains a very private person and she has to deal with all his public persona how the public is sort of looking at them and examining them uh, to see if they're, you know, okay in terms of do they meet the standards of what was considered respectability at that point. They have guests in their home continually. She's got to take care of the children and have an orderly home. She also does not read. She's illiterate. She has a whole, and she's cast into the sort of public role that she doesn't really want. And the intrusion of the public 
into her, into their life, constantly wanting to know, you know, what's going on in there since people are coming in and out all the time. Talk about her feelings, particularly when it comes to, uh, Julia Griffith and who she is and how she gets involved with, with, uh, Douglas and how she ends up in their home. Yeah. Which was like, okay, it's a little much too much to ask, you know? Yeah. Well, and that's the thing is, you know, what, what a lot of people, when they come at this, they look at the Julia Griffith is like, oh yeah, you know, and you start to hear bong, chicka, ball, ball. And they want to get into like, oh, there's something sexual going on there. And that's why Anna was upset. And I'm probably jumping ahead for anyone who's listening. So what, um, what happens is, you know, this is, Frederick becomes famous. And like you said, all of this attention is coming to their family. And on top of that, there is certain level of you've got all these white people in the north who don't usually see black people. And they see when they see and then when they think of black people, their image of black people is from minstrel shows. So they see the Douglas family and there's a certain level of kind of curiosity, (laughs) like, Let's go. We want to see this. We want to. There's a black person in town. Let's go see this. And that's, well, a little bit racist and a little bit disconcerting and a little bit frustrating and infuriating. And she's got to hold all this off, plus all the people Frederick's bringing. And she's got to hold all this off because she's there protecting the privacy of their family because, you know, you don't want all of this intrusion. Um, and then Frederick is sometimes at odds with that because he's inviting all these people to come in. And the way I always saw it, you know, there is this line in the house that they're, they seem, and this is just my theory, that they seem to be negotiating as to where that line is between public and private or semi-public and semi-private. What, how far do you let outsiders in and um and which outsiders and it really comes to a head when um when douglas ends up with very important friendships that press up against the kind of borders that a wife would would be really potent for a wife so um frederick douglas has this uh, woman, it actually begins her and her sister, along with several other people living in the Douglas household, who are there to support him as he begins his paper, The North Star, in Rochester. Um, Julia Griffiths especially is the one who, I mean, she's, I think she's one of the most important people in making sure he becomes the Frederick Douglas we know. She comes in with business acumen, publishing expertise. She's clearly very well educated. She's got this background. Um, she's got overseas connections. She plugs into a group of women who are not very well organized and brings them together and organizes them to support the newspaper as well as kind of a different anti-slavery agenda in Western New York. So she's really quite instrumental in the abolitionist movement in Western New York, as well as in supporting Douglas. So she's quite a powerhouse. And um, she was one of the first people I was really incredibly interested in around him. And um, so she comes in from England and she steps in and helps him save the paper. Her sister marries 
the printer who was already living in the house and they leave. Um, some of the other people who are living in the household also leave. So it's left the Douglas family and Julia Griffiths. They go to work together all day. They're in the North Star office doing business. They come home at a time when Anna could reasonably expect Douglas, her husband, to pay attention to household matters and the family. And Julie Griffiths is still there. And they go up to his office and they continue to work on business. And so from Anna's point of view, okay, this is our time, our family time, and you're still doing business time. No. And um, so this creates a tension as to who Douglas thinks it's okay to have in the house and he should have his entitlement. It is right to have who he wants in the house, in the house as his friend and doing what's necessary to keep the business going, which keeps that roof over their head. And Anna saying, um, can't she go live somewhere else? And you need to pay attention to the family. I mean, great. She's helping the business going in the roof of the head, but you need to attend to what's under the roof. And so this kind of creates this tension of him being head of the household, but her being head in the household. And, um, and I, I kind of wonder how many families had that kind of tension going on. And, um, eventually Griffith does move to another household because again, this starts to call attention. They have a lot of enemies within the movement and this starts to call, they, that, this starts to call that attention. It becomes something that those enemies can use against Douglas and Griffiths. William Lloyd Garrison does use it. So then that calls more public attention, bad public attention, calls into question their respectability. So it calls it, it threatens kind of what Anna and Douglas are doing together, creating this respectable family. And it draws her then into the public sphere when she gets called upon to defend the family in the pages of the Liberator. Like, okay, this is not what she bargained for at all. In fact, this is not something has gone terribly awry for her. Now, you mentioned a lot of women in your book. There's so many. I was just like, wow. Yeah. I mean, there's all kinds of women working with him, traveling with him, supporting his work, working in the office, uh, lecturing, going out lecturing with him. Uh, they buy his freedom. Women mm-hmm. buy his freedom. He, you know, women are really very involved in supporting his work. And one thing that you talk about is that he was a very uh, attractive man for women. Yeah, he was powerful. He was he was a big guy, and he was just kind of attractive or intriguing, right? Yeah. And that probably didn't help him because uh, yeah, other people could notice that women were drawn to him. Oh, yeah. In fact, that started to really be the letters coming over from England. Um, the Boston Public Library has this great anti-slavery collection, and these are all the Garrisonians, the, um, the American Anti-Slavery Society based in Boston. And uh, they're kind of keeping tabs on him while he's in England the first time. And um, they're all, they're always right. They're all writing back saying, oh, my God, the women are throwing themselves at him. The women are making fools of themselves over him. Um, some one, one guy says something to the effect. It's Richard Webb, who's an Irish abolitionist in Dublin. And 
he has a very tart tongue. His letters are always hilarious because he's, he's kind of, you know, very catty. <laughs> and, and he's writing to Maria Weston Chapman in Boston and she's very catty. And so they're, they're, they're fun, very well, certain words and kind of letters to read. And, um, she, so he says, yeah, he, he's, He's actually kind of dismayed that a lot of these women are joining the abolitionists or, you know, he, Douglas is gaining a lot of, you know, followers, the abolitionist movement. But he's he's really dismayed. He thinks they're only joining for him, not for the cause. In other words, <laughs> he's a rock star. Yeah. It's like they don't love the cause. They just love him. This is. Yeah. <laughs> um, and um but one of the women, Isabel Jennings, um, who uh, actually um, she she she's one of his good friends and um, she's in Cork, Ireland. Um, she's actually a character in Call McCann's Transatlantic. Um, she uh, it, that's one of the characters he chose to focus on in the novel. But um, she says, you know. He behave you know, he is so proper. He's in holding these women off, you know, he's doing all he can. He's being a gentleman. They're the ones making fools of themselves. And, um, but you know, his charisma is what brought, you know, men wouldn't talk this way, but you know, it brought men to the audience. It's what brought, um, it's what drew people to him and it would be more acceptable for women to act that way than for men to act that way. But right. men were drawn to him. Um, and you see, uh, men, um, you know, it becomes an alpha male competition with men as to who, who's going to be the leader, the black leader. Um, but I mean, there's that book of photographs of him that you look at that. He's got that charisma and that, that, you know, just attractiveness that still is compelling across a century and a half. Now, his uh, the other person that we that you talk about a lot, which I found very interesting, was his daughter Rosetta. Yeah, and there's a lot of reasons why she's interesting, and one of them, of course, is she's being raised in a completely new way. Yeah, that than her the extended family. Uh, the Douglas's extended family that comes together after abolition and they kind of reconnect with each other. She doesn't seem to fit I mean, anywhere. She doesn't fit with white people. She doesn't fit with her own African-American people. She's just sort of at a loss. It, yeah. Can you talk about her? I've really felt a lot for her because I thought she was a, she's a very a transitional figure. Yes, yes. She, um, there is, you know, and I felt for, I mean, but my first connected to her as the oldest daughter in a family of sons, because I'm the oldest daughter in a family of sons. But also, um, yeah, there's no model for her. There is no, you know, a generation later, help, sorry, excuse me, 10 years later, there might have been, but there is no model for her of a respectable, black woman you know where is this woman for her um educated educated um raising a family i mean she's none of this is around her and she's kind of torn between she's very much a daddy's girl 
And who wouldn't look up to this father? She wants to please him. Um, it's easy for her brothers because, you know, you go and you be a man like dad. You go and you fight in the Civil War. But if you're a girl, you can't go and be like dad and you don't have any female versions of dad. And then you have a mother who's very much a traditional woman. And um, and the kind of women that intellectually stimulate dad are white women, and they're always passing through when they're not raising families. And she seems to also want to raise a family. I mean, she does have all those daughters. And so it's like she's torn. And when she does venture out, and try to go out on her own and teach in New Jersey, in Philadelphia, in New Jersey. And she's just astounded by how nasty the upper class um, black bourgeoisie is in Philadelphia and how nasty people can be um, when she goes to teach poor stu- students. And, and she's, you know, I kind of got why she decided, let me get married and try to strike out over here <laughs> but she did does she she seems to marry beneath her status yeah which causes problems for her yeah. because she, she can never really get away from her father yeah well i don't think she wants to get away from her father that's the thing um i think in a certain way she may have seen herself as stepping into a role like um Oh, like, say, Kate Chase Sprague did for her father or um, like uh, Fanny Seward did for William Seward. Family Su- Fanny Seward did for William Seward. You're like you have these or, or even um, uh, Martha Jefferson Jr. Martha Jefferson Randolph did for Thomas Jefferson. You're like the daughter steps in to be kind of the hostess. And um, and it didn't work out that way. And. Um, and she chose this, this young man who she thought had promise. Um, I think Anna probably liked this young man because he looked like he had promise. But um, and I wanted, oh, gosh, with her husband, Nathan, I, I so wanted to, you know, help him out. <laughs> I so wanted to say, oh, no, everybody's misinterpreted him. It's like, oh, God, you know, he was misunderstood. No, oh, every every dog of it. He could not get out of his own way. And um, it, like, no, you did not do that. No. <laughs> and um, and I felt so bad for her. And she just she she bet on the wrong person. And um, and she was but she obviously. You know, loved him. At some level, I mean, she obviously loved him. They kept having the baby. She kept taking it back. She kept defending him. She, and she, she wanted to please daddy so much. So now let's talk a bit, a little bit about uh, how Rosetta and these, all these women that were in the abolitionist movement affected Douglas's view of women's rights and how you know, we know we know historically how all this is all tangled up together, and for him it was really tangled up together. Yeah, and uh, so that kind of led to some problems later. Let's talk about him and women's rights, and and how all these ex- relationships with women affected his views. Oh well, yeah, I mean, I tell you that was the hardest part to really get a grip on 
I mean, you think it would be a no brainer, Frederick Douglass and women's rights. And, um, and it, it had to be, I mean, that was the last chapter I wrote. And then I had to go and rewrite the whole thing about it. And it was, that was the hardest thing. And when I started to look at, cause I was the way I was trying to approach it, especially initially was, um, okay. Frederick Douglass participating in the women's rights movement. And what I found very frustrating was there was not a lot of there there. I mean, he didn't attend a lot of women's rights meeting in kind of its early heyday of the 1850s. And a lot of that had to do with the politics of the 1850s and the politics of the anti-slavery movement. And that I found very frustrating. And um, but it wasn't like and I, I got a little mad at him for a while there. But then it was like, OK, wait, maybe I'm approaching this. Uh, from a wrong angle. Let's look at this because it's broader than this because everything has been broader than just the movement. You know, everything is like he approached civil rights as the personal politics. So where else is he advancing a woman's right agenda and where is it coming from? Because, you know, he tells this great story about um, Elizabeth Cady Stanton accosting him in 1841 and, um, and she's she's I actually I looked at like because I'm always counting back from nine from when the babies are born. You know, so she's she actually was very visibly pregnant when um, she costs him at this meeting and she's telling him women's rights. You know, women should have the right to vote in 1841. And um, when he's two months on the road as an abolitionist. So he tells a story that like right there at the beginning of his anti-slavery career, he's exposed to women's rights, the idea of women's rights as a movement. And, um, and he's been traveling with Abby Kelly doing things that women don't do, which is standing up in front of a crowd, speaking to a crowd, being called all sorts of horrible names. And then I started thinking, well, he's also seen, you know, if you go back and you look at his autobiographies and he's talking about all of these women under slavery, all of these women, there's some powerful women there. And what he's encountering you know, as a working class free black man and under slavery, it's just a very natural progression for him to understand women as equal partners. Now, how that translates into politics may take a little pushing like from Elizabeth Cady Stanton to say, hey, you know, this thing is right in front of you. Look at it. Women maybe should have the same political rights. And so it's it's a very easy push. And then when you start to look at in a marginal movement like the very radical abolitionists, the very fringe abolitionists like they are um, calling for equal rights for everyone, Again, not a very far push. So when I started looking at it as something broader than just going to meetings, you know, he's coming through a civil rights agenda that's not just ending slavery, but it's also providing education and employment opportunities for not just black men, but all black people, which includes black women. This is also the agenda of the women's rights movement. So he's pushing this agenda. Um, so, yeah, he's going to push it. He's pushing it for white women as well. Um, so he's supporting it across racial lines. When I started noticing him going to the black men's movement, he's there 
pushing women's rights into the black convention movement. And usually they're called they're they're called black convention movements. Sometimes they're called black men's movements, but it, it's pretty masculine. And he's usually there explicitly saying we should include women's rights as part of our resolutions. So he's doing what we call today intersectionality. Um, and so he's 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 doing this. You know, he's pushing women's rights in a different angle than we're usually used to thinking of women's rights. Um, he's still a race man. He's still very much concerned about black masculinity, especially as the Civil War comes along. And then everything becomes about the dudes and men and manhood. Um, but it's manhood is opposition to boyhood as opposed to manhood in opposition to womanhood. Um, womanhood is kind of a non thing. And that becomes something that women talk about. I'm just yeah. wondering how much of this, uh, uh, what was the intersection between he wants, he wants, there's the whole idea of, you know, of black women having the right, quote unquote, the social right to take care of their own families, their own children. Okay. Not having their children sold, you know, yeah. from them, uh, being able to have, uh, to take care of their own houses instead of a white woman's house. So how much does he see his, the race issue as earning for black women the same dignity and choices that white women had at that time? And how much of his extension of women's rights from social convention to something bigger, you know, a political thing? You see what I'm saying? I, I think I do. It's like we, we usually think of... Um when we're thinking of women's rights, we're usually thinking of women, you know, not having to be only housewives and so right. forth. But, yeah. they, but for black women, that was yeah. the right to take care of your own house Yeah, and have and, your own house. And I, you know, and I kept, I kept trying to wrap my mind around the way they're approaching it because I mean, even Elizabeth Cady Stanton, you know, in, in her group are, they're trying to think of it in the same way we think of it today. Black women are thinking of it in a different way. And, um, and I don't think, you know, and I'm, and even when I'm looking at the whole 19th century, you know, when you are talking about, and I think this is what it ended up leaving to the 19th, the modern, you know, the 20th century women's rights movement to grapple with that we're still grappling with. You know, you want work, you want the family. How do you put those two together, especially when all of the home work falls to the woman? How do you how do you spread that out? And I don't think they had quite gotten to the point of realizing because he's like, yeah, women should, you know, black women should be able to have the family and have that dignity of running their own homes and everything. And they should also be able to have, you know, jobs and education and all of this. And, and of course, this will translate in the traditional way, like the Republican motherhood, you know, of raising those good families. But um, I don't think he quite and I don't think a lot of people at the time quite understood how do you how do you juggle those two? And I mean, you see that with like Abby Kelly Foster. You see that with the Grimke sisters, with these abolitionist women who had these public careers who then get married and have children and they're like, well, we want this public career, but we also want to take care of our children and have the family. And how do you do both? And, and it's a very modern question. Mm -hmm. And um, and 
what I find a lot in the 19th century is they're anticipating the things that we still fight for today. They didn't even know how to ask the questions, much less address the answers in some way. Okay, so then we have a this, the Civil War, the abolition of slavery, and you know there's a big uh, battle there between women rights advocates and and Af- free free African American men who now are going to get the vote. Yeah. So which is a big fall. He feels very betrayed by the women's rights advocates, and. And then, you know, his wife uh, of 44 years also dies. Can you talk about what do you think? Uh, uh, I mean, all this this battle, he's fought all this time for the abolition of slavery. It happens. And then mm-hmm. he's very disappointed by the way white women uh, are resentful of black men getting the vote. Yeah. Without them getting the vote. Yeah. Well, I will say that, you know, even when I'm teaching this part of history, it's like this was not the women's movement's finest hour. (laughs) And um, I mean, it wasn't his finest hour either, but it wasn't their finest hour. And um, and what I have to you know, when I'm trying to teach this to students, especially is sometimes when you're an activist, you have to be a reactivist in a way. You don't get to write the laws. You know, the laws get proposed. You agitate for the laws and then the laws get written. And because of the way laws get written, sometimes you get a fraction of what you want. And so what they were given was a half measure. So do you support this half measure or do you trash it for the whole measure? And Douglas wanted the whole measure. But they only got the half measure. And at this point, that half measure was not nothing. I mean, it was you did have the former Confederates coming back, white supremacists coming back. You had night Riders. You had people being killed in the streets. And it meant something. This voting right meant something even in the north where black men couldn't vote in many most states in the north and then only one state didn't have property qualifications so this was not nothing and so you know he supported the 14th and 15th amendment half measure and then went on to support women's rights you know women women suffrage and they they were willing to sell out black men Black women, uneducated men and women. I mean, it was pretty clear they were looking out just for their class. And I mean, I'm sympathetic that, yeah, women were being beaten and that they had no rights to their property and so forth. But it kind of became clear that they, you know, their agenda was a little bit for themselves <laughs> and, um, a lot for themselves and it wasn't as broad based. And so um, when it came down to that, I felt like, like I say in the book, in some respects, he was a better woman's rights man than they were civil rights women. And I mean, don't get me wrong. I'm really glad Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Susan B. Anthony did the work they did. Right. But on this issue, they were wrong. <laughs> and um, that in, you know, and, and he did go on to support them. Now, you've got uh, his wife dies, and then 
He's uh, when how old is he when his wife dies? Seventy? Uh, not quite seventy. He's in his sixties. Okay, and he turns around and does a real doozy. Mm-hmm. Okay, in terms of social doozies. Yes. <laughs> he, he he marries Helen Pitts, a white woman. Yes. Which shocks everyone, not just yes. white society, but African American people, his family, yes. everybody. Okay, and. Let's talk about that. Uh, who is Helen Pitts? How do they meet? Mm-hmm. Why did they marry quickly and in secret? <laughs> and what it brought up all kinds of issues. Yeah. Uh, it was almost like a, it, it, it just came across to me as I read the, about the marriage and the ensuing scandal that it produced. <laughs> that it, this was really a political act. Not that they didn't love each other. I'm just mm-hmm. saying that they both saw it as a political statement because, oh, absolutely. She, because she was a lot younger than he was. She, she was like 44 or something. She had never married. She had been very devoted to abolitionists and equal equality for African-American people. And that was a huge statement for her to make at midlife oh, yeah. to marry this African and he also him after all the rumors, all the stuff that's been you know insinuated about him, and uh, here he is, just really giving it to him. Talk about it. It's really it was just a phenomenal move. Yeah. Well, it was. Um, you know, I I I I confess I probably um, love her more than I should. <laughs> For it to be objective, um, but she, uh, I probably identify her with her more than um, than you know maybe is objective for a historian. But no, I mean I start off. She's kind of a, when you read her bio, the biographies about him, she's kind of a nobody. I mean, and and it it started to annoy me because really when you read the biographies, they hold up Anna and Helen in opposition to each other. And so they stop being people. They stop being women. And, and their marriages stop being marriages. They start being symbols. And, um, you know, so here's Anna and her blackness and her illiteracy and, and Helen and her whiteness and her literacy. And, um, that's not women. That's, that's nothing. You know, that's, that's some, that's, that's. They symbolize a class. Yeah. And it's um, and it does disrespect to what Douglas saw in each woman and what each woman brought to them in the marriage of each. And um, so nobody nobody ever asked, you know, it was almost like taken for granted. Well, of course, he'd marry a white woman who was you know, educated. Like, well, why would she marry him? Because her family, I mean, her father cut her out of his will. Her family, all but her sister Jenny, really cut her off. And so I started to look, and, and nobody had really bothered to look much into her background. They had her, um, one historian had her attending Hampton University, one had her teaching Hampton. Neither one of those institutions existed until after the Civil War. And, um, and, uh, so when I started looking into her and I found out she was one of the first teachers down in Norfolk when they, you know, after emancipation and the letters in the American um, Missionary Association, what she went through. I was like, 
wow, man, okay, this is what women did. This is how they mobilized to go show their womanhood in fighting the Civil War. She went down there and she taught freed people. She taught free people who um, sold black soldiers, you know, who had been slaves to read. I mean, that it, it ruined her health. Like it ruined a lot of people's health who went down to do that. And that was, I was like, I really admired that. And, um, and so it made sense. Yeah. Somebody who would do that, who really put her life on the line for a cause would attract him. And, uh, um, then and then it would be very aware that what she's doing when she marries a black man is going to be making a huge statement. And um, she had been among free people. This was something that was more real to her. Black people were more real to her. They weren't, you know, minstrel show characters or curiosities. Um, this was this was something she had put her life into. So. You know, of course, they would have a meeting of the minds and um, and then they seem to have a lot of interests in common. And um, so and then she was past childbearing age. And so they, there was not really or I'm assuming she was past childbearing age. She didn't produce she didn't produce any children. And um, so there really wasn't that much of a threat of more little Douglases coming along to complicate inheritance later. And companionship. It, I thought it was always funny that Rosetta thought her father was too old, too old to get married again. All of that was done for him. And it's like, dad's a pretty vital guy. <laughs> Let me and, ask you about uh, when Helen, Helen, uh, after Douglas dies, she does do a lot of work to preserve his papers. Yeah. And, 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 and he, she really kind of got crossways with his children. Mm-hmm. About the inheritances, right? Yeah. Because he left her some, he left her something. Oh yeah, he left her a third of the house and all of his papers and books. So they had already, I mean, it seems clear that they were already expecting her to preserve his papers and books, you know, kind of as his legacy, which is what you expected the wife to do. And she, she hit up on this idea of turning his home into something like Mount Vernon, which was cutting edge for that period of time. I mean, Monticello was not a museum. None of the president's homes were museums, just Mount Vernon, which was just up the river. So why not have a black Mount Vernon? You know, a, 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 mon, a house museum dedicated to the abolitionist movement and the fulfillment of American freedom told through the story of Frederick Douglass, you know, a man who, who, who rose from slavery to these heights, literally, if you go to the house, you're on a hill and you can see the capital across the river. And, um, and so this was, this was a cutting edge in terms of museums and preservation. So the children, you know, were really in the mainstream to say, uh, no, just sell the house and we'll split the proceeds. We need the money. So she had to buy them out of their shares so that she could kind of fulfill this. And um, they had made their their position known. So she said, OK, I'm going to be proceeding with this on my own. And that led to conflict. Now, when you're putting this whole story together, it's it's really 
there's so many details here. There's so much stuff that I didn't even know that I think I'll never read Douglas the same again. <laughs> okay. So what, how do you feel? Uh, what do you think that you, how your book will be useful, not just by social historians and historians of abolition, but, you know, all kinds of historians who really look at his work. I think it frames his work very different. It just, I think it sheds a lot of light. So how do you hope it will be useful? And how does it, this story that you've written, how does it change the overall narrative uh, or vision or image of, of Douglas? Oh my goodness. I'm still a little close to close to it to see the whole big picture, like how I'm, you know, you get so into it. Um, details kind of overwhelm me. But, um, you know, one, I hope it, Douglas, to see him as a man, and I don't mean knock him off his pedestal, see him as a man, but see him as this, this man, real man who had these real relationships and, you know, made these decisions and whose politics were shaped by these human relationships. And um, quite often I read biographies and I feel like there's a push and pull between great man and not great man off his pedestal, you know, humanize him by making him small. Yeah. And it's like, no, he was a great man, but, but he was a man. And you to see him through the people who were just as fascinated and frustrated by him and to understand that um, he didn't just get up there and happen. You know, he didn't just come full form. There were all of these people who created him, and these female people who created him, and who influenced him, and who were, I, I want to say dialogue, but, you know, there was these interactions and these relationships that shaped him. And I think that there's a work, more work to be done on looking at all these, some of the intellectual uh Friend, oh. women friends, to see how much of their ideas interacted with his ideas, how he changed them, how they changed they changed him and he changed them, you know, this interaction. Because I think that there's it hasn't really been explored. No. And fact, I think I, that would be a really great line of a, of work. Oh, yeah. I, I feel like I shortchanged that because I was, you know, I was looking more kind of like the, the, the physical part. I mean, like like the, the materialist part. Right. Right. And um, I think that's that's going to be an element of the next one, because, I mean, a lot of to look how they they would influence each other intellectually. That was going to take a whole other set of skills and research that that was going to well, become. And um, and, and I want to, you know, I'm kind of interested in following him that whole trip to Europe with his second wife. And look, and, and that's a whole deal about him being an intellectual. So I think that part will play into that. Well, I also kind of like somebody pay me to follow in his footsteps, but yeah. yeah well, that's, it's, it's very, I mean, there's all kinds of questions that your work brings out. All kinds of women that need to be more attention need to be paid to them, paid to them. So mm-hmm. Leah, you've been very generous with your time. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you. Thank you. And thank you to our listeners for tuning in to another edition of New Books and Gender Studies. You can contact me through my website at www.lillianbarger.com. This is your host, Lillian Barger.